It's good to see you tonight. As Brother Monty mentioned, we'll be talking about Numbers chapter 19 tonight. <clears throat> and if you've already read this chapter, maybe you're thinking, why in the world do I care about the ashes of some cow? Is it even relevant for us to talk about this? Does it even matter? Well, I think it does. And the reason that I believe this matters is because Paul thought it mattered. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 13 here, the writer says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ? And we'll come back to this later. But notice that Paul uses what we're learning about here tonight in Numbers 19 to correlate to what Jesus did. And obviously Jesus is greater, Jesus is better, but there's something about the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean and the sanctification of the purifying of the flesh that we can obviously learn about. And so what I want to do tonight is let's go through the chapter. Uh, it's 22 verses. We're going to talk about it as we go through it. And then once we end, we're going to talk about some shadows or types or mirrors or we may just say the spiritual application of what happened in Israel. Uh, because these things, they had a very specific purpose for the children of Israel, a very physical and fleshly purpose. Uh, but to us, there's a spiritual application that I think we can gain from uh, what we learn from this chapter. So we're just going to jump right in to verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law, which the Lord has commanded, speaking, or saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring you a red heifer without blemish, in which there's no defect, and on which a yoke has never come. So there's three, uh, three words that are used here in verse 2. Ordinance, law, and commandment. That's pretty strong, isn't it? Ordinance, law, commandment. That tells us something about this. This is not a suggestion that God had for the people. This was his decree. This was his will for Israel. And this... The word red heifer is really just red cow, but the application of what Israel practiced is the reason why it's translated heifer. Um, obviously, this was to be one without blemish, and there's a lot of different ideas about what that might have meant. We're not going to go into detail on that. Uh, but in which there's no defect and on which a yoke has never come. So this couldn't have been a beast of burden. It couldn't have been a, a working animal. It had to have been one that had never been uh, used as a beast of burden and had no defect in it or blemish. You shall give it, that's the heifer, to Eleazar the priest. Now if you remember from earlier in our studies of Numbers, Eleazar is one of the sons of Aaron. Uh, Aaron had four boys, two of them had died because of what they did there at the altar of incense, Nadab and Abihu, and two of his boys were left over. And Eleazar was going to be the one that was given the responsibility of seeing at this time the, the ordinance of the red heifer. So Eleazar, and it says that he may take it outside the camp and it shall be slaughtered before him. Now this is different because most of the sacrifices that were performed were performed inside the camp. This one is not. This one's taken outside the camp. This red heifer is to be killed outside the camp and slaughtered. And it says, Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood seven times directly in front of the tabernacle of meeting. Now, if you remember, when we looked at the corridor of 
if you will, of how they set up all those tribes around the tabernacle. We're talking about millions of people in 12 camps set up around the tabernacle, which was the center of the congregation or the camp. So they go all the way outside and they kill this animal. Then Eleazar has to bring this blood all the way back in and sprinkle the blood before the tabernacle. And so they have to go, that seems inconvenient, right? Well, God's got a purpose for this. So Eleazar, very similar to what we see in other times with what the high priest did, sprinkled the blood seven times. Uh, oftentimes, or, mo or all the time, when they sprinkled that blood seven times, that was a sanctifying or a consecrating act, just like on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16, where they would sprinkle the blood of the, of the bull and the goat on the uh, mercy seat. So that's what's going on here with the sprinkling of the blood. But this isn't actually in the tabernacle, it's in front of the tabernacle of meeting. Verse 5, Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight, its hide, its flesh, its blood, and its offal shall be burned. What is awful? Not awful, A-W-F-U-L, but awful means its entrails. This is also different. The entire sacrifice was to be burned. If you go back and you look at the ram sacrifice and the other burnt offerings, they were separated out. And only certain parts were burned. And where were they burned? On the altar. And then they'd take the rest of it and it, it would be burned in a separate place. But here they're going to put every part of this heifer right there and burn it all together. But not without other ingredients, if you will. Verse 6, the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast them into the midst of the fire, burning the heifer. So once this heifer began to be burning, they would add ingredients to that. Cedar, the cedar chips, obviously. I don't know if it's chips, by the way. Uh, this is hyssop over here, kind of a pretty flower, really. Uh, it's called the sacred flower in Israel, hyssop is. And also, it said scarlet. Now, there's some debate on what scarlet means. Um, if you go back and you like to do Hebrew by the number, if you'll go back and look, that word scarlet is two Hebrew words. One means crimson, the other one means worm, red worm. You say, well, that's kind of odd. Well, that's actually where they would get their red dye was from this particular red worm. I know that doesn't look like a worm, but that's, that's called the scarlet worm or the crimson worm. Now, some have related this to Jesus because... That word is used in Psalms 22, I'm a worm and no man. I don't want to really uh, take a dive and, and try to connect those two things. But obviously there was a purpose uh, that God had in mind of using cedar, hyssop, and the, the red dye from these. Whether it was worms or it was the red dye from these worms, it was related to the worms because that's where they got that crimson or scarlet. And so they had to burn all this together. Now, here's, this is really interesting. Then the priest shall wash his clothes, he shall bathe in water, and afterward he shall come into the camp. The priest shall be unclean until evening. Here's another exception with this red heifer sac sacrifice. None of the other sacrifices that were offered rendered the priest unclean, but this one did. Once he made this sacrifice, he was now unclean. Now, what did he do? Did he kill it? No. Did he burn it? No. What did he do? He let it out there and he touched its blood. But then you have verse 8, And the one who burns it shall wash his clothes in water, bathe in water, and shall be unclean until evening. 
But there's a third party involved here. Verse 9, then a man who is clean, so neither Eleazar or whoever they've designated to burn the animal, but a third party, then a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and store them outside the camp in a clean place, and they shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for the water of purification. It is for purifying from sin. Before we read verse 10, I want you to think about something else. They, they sacrifice this heifer outside the camp. They never bring the ashes inside the camp. It stays outside the camp. Again, very different from the other sacrifices that we see. But this is a three-man job. One to lead it, one to burn it, one to gather up the ashes. And now the one, verse 10, the one that gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. It shall be a statute forever to the children of Israel and to the stranger who dwells among them. So that's in short the instructions that God gives about this red heifer. Now we're going to look at the application of when is this water of purifying actually useful? All right, verse 11. So before I dive into verse 11, uh, this is not the same as a sin offering. Not in that way. It's not it's not made when somebody sins necessarily. This is going to be for purifying the flesh when someone becomes unclean. So just get those distinctions. There's a reason why the other sacrifices were there at the altar. A uh, sacrifice of reconciliation or atonement. This is different. This is going to involve whether or not someone is allowed to be inside of the congregation. That's what this sacrifice is about. And so there's time periods that we're going to see where people were outside the camp. Uh, there's, there's different ordinances even built within that time period to determine when somebody can come back in the camp. That's what we're going to see through the rest of the chapter. So he who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with the water on the third and on the seventh day. Then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. So they're going to mix all this ash and hyssop, uh, well, the ash from the hyssop and the heifer and the cedar and the, the worm or the, or the scarlet, however you want to look at that. They're going to mix it with water, and then they're going to put it on this person who touched, came in contact with a dead body. Uh, and they did on the third and on the seven days. He's got to stay out at least seven days, but if he doesn't do this, uh, what we might call ritual, this cleansing ritual, he's not allowed to come back in the camp. Now, we'll talk more about that later. We're going to come back to that toward the end of the chapter. Whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from Israel. He shall be unclean because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanness is still on him. So again, this isn't about reconciling him to God. This is about reconciling him back to the congregation which in application is reconciling back to God. So it's all connected. Verse 14, this is the law when a man dies in a tent. So the other one's just generic. If somebody dies and you get, come in contact with them, here's what to do. If somebody dies in a tent, now we have to worry about the tent itself. And so all who come into the tent and all who are in the tent shall be unclean seven days. So if you go into the tent, you find somebody that's deceased, you're unclean for a week. If somebody has to go in and clean up the tent, they're unclean for a week. 
Every open vessel, verse 15, which has no cover fastened on it is unclean. So it's not just about the person or the people in there, but if there was some type of container, let's say herbs or something like that, and they didn't have a lid fastened on them, they said, well, those are now unclean. We can't use those. You have to get rid of them. You, th- you think, well, this is, this is somewhat odd, right? This is somewhat odd. Well, really, it's not. Again, a lot of this is very practical. What is the danger of touching a deceased body? Not everybody dies of natural causes. And so you put people outside the camp and you put this, this uh, mixture of this, this ash and water on them. And a lot of people believe this is actually an ancient recipe for what we would call lye soap. And it had a cleansing effect. And it had some antibacterial properties to it. And so they're making sure that's why there's sort of a quarantine period for seven days. We know what that's like, don't we? Where you can't come back unless we know you're not sick. That's what this is all about. Now, also the vessels. Is that strange? Well, what do you see happen in a hospital? What do they do when somebody leaves that hospital room? They come and they clean the whole thing, don't they? That's exactly what God's saying. If, if something is not fastened, if it's not protected, then it's not safe. It's unclean. Get rid of it. Verse 16. Now we're going to deal with people in an open field. So we dealt with generic in a tent. Now, out in an open field. Whoever in the open field touches one who is slain by a sword or who has died or a bone of a man or a grave shall be unclean seven days. Now, I'm not, I, I haven't been able to determine from this what they would do in military situations. Uh, because the camp where the tabernacle is, again, and kind of spoiler alert here, we're, we're all talking about the camp being a holy camp, something that doesn't need to be defiled. There were different circumstances military-wise. And so obviously in a military uh, uh, siege, there's going to be lots of people in the open field who are slain by swords, right? Well, what did they do with those people? Well, they weren't allowed to go back to the camp, but a lot of them stayed encamped within the, the army, the, what we might call the, the barracks or whatever. And for an unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the heifer burnt for purification from sin, and running water shall be put on them in a vessel. Now, if you look up that word running, it literally means water that is alive. You say, oh, living water. Well, don't, don't, no, don't, don't, don't jump too far. Running is a good translation here. Moving water. Why would they use moving water? Why moving water? Well, if you're out in the wilderness and you're going to look for water to drink, are you going to drink from a pool? Or a river? Easy answer, right? Running water. And you're going to look upstream, right? But running water is clean. You see a cold running stream? That's clean water. Again, this is for purification. We're using clean water, mixing that with this ash and other ingredients. So another thing that's added. Now, this is a little bit uh, somewhat, I wouldn't say a mistranslation, but perhaps a translation that maybe sound a little unclear. Running water shall be put on them in a vessel. Well, that nearly sounds like you're putting a person in a vessel and then putting running water on them. I think the ESV uh, probably translates this a little better when it just says, and fresh water shall be added in a vessel. So they're putting the water in the vessel, then they're going to put the ingredients in the vessel. And then we're going to notice that they're going to dip it in that vessel. They're going to dip some hyssop in a vessel. So verse 18, a clean person shall take hyssop 
and dip it in the water. So the water's got hyssop in it. Now they're going to take hyssop and dip the hyssop in it and sprinkle it on the tent. So think about this. He's sprinkling this ashy water all over the tent and on all the vessels, on the persons who were there, or on the one who touched a bone to slain the dead or a grave. The clean person shall sprinkle the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. So just like what we saw earlier. And on the seventh day, he shall purify himself, wash his clothes, and bathe in water. And at evening, he shall be unclean. So just like this other situation, this person who's designated to take the hyssop and sprinkle the water is also unclean. You think, well, he did, but sprinkle water. He's coming into contact with things that are unclean. So, so they're going to quarantine him as well. All right, so here, here's toward the end of the chapter, the last three verses, and we're going to come back to this at the very end. <clears throat> but this is very similar to what we saw, I believe it was in around verse 13. He says, but the man who is unclean and does not purify himself, that person shall be cut off from among the assembly because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. So earlier tabernacle, now sanctuary, same thing, different idea. Tabernacle is a tent, sanctuary is a sacred tent or a holy tent. You know, if you call something a sanctuary, it's a holy place. That's what the word sanctuary, like sanctify, means. The water of purification has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. It shall be a perpetual statute for them. That's this unclean person that did not get the water of sprinkling, and we'll talk about it later. He who sprinkles the water of purification shall wash his clothes, and he who touches the water of purification shall be unclean until evening. Whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. That's interesting, isn't it? This purification water, if you touch it, you're unclean. That's odd. Let's not go into a bunch of what-ifs. Um, there's lots of what-ifs. Why a red heifer? Some say, well, that represents the blood of Jesus. I, I don't know that. The Bible never really connects that. And, there, and I think there's a lot of things that we could try to connect and maybe make assumptions about, but I just want to be practical Let's think about the purpose of all this, and let's connect it, because again, there was something that Paul thought we could learn about this in correlation to Jesus. And I think the first thing we can learn is that uncleanness defiles what is holy. Why is, why is it that God made them stay outside the tabernacle or out, and even outside the camp? Well, Exodus 19, 4 through 6, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So, everybody here is aware of an if-then, right? An if-then. We call that a contingency. And here's what God says. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then... You'll be what? A special treasure, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. So let's take away the if-then clause. If you don't obey, if you don't obey and you don't keep my covenant, you're not a special people, you're not a holy nation, you're not a kingdom of priests. That's the contingency. God, and what did God tell them? He gave them all these laws about staying holy, staying clean, Staying consecrated, remaining, 
within a camp of holy people around a holy God who dwelt in a holy house. A holy house. Do you know we are that house? Hebrews 3, 6. But Christ is a son over his own house. Listen, whose house we are if... Well, that sounds a lot like Exodus 19, doesn't it? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. He said, you're a house to God. Is God going to live in an unholy, defiled house? No. So he says, you're a house to the Son of God if you hold fast the confidence. What does he mean, hold fast the confidence? He mean, be confident? No. He's talking about the confidence that we have, the trust that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and our focus is on the eternal reward. That's what he wants from us. 2 Corinthians 6, 17, similar language here, and he actually borrows this. Anytime you see this in caps, this is prophecy. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Again, similar contingency here. Be separate. Don't touch what's unclean. Why? Because what's unclean defiles what is holy, and God is holy. And he said, I'll be a father to you. You'll be my sons and my daughters. I'll walk with you. I'll dwell with you. But you've got to separate yourself from what is unclean because what is unclean defiles what is holy. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. He says, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which one, no one rather, will see the Lord. Verse 15, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by this many become defiled. So here we have what you might call uh, a contagious situation. Let's call it that, a contagious situation. Again, a lot of this was about quarantining. Let's keep what is defiled outside the congregation so it doesn't affect the congregation. Now look at verse 15 again. Looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. That word defiled is the same as unclean. You say, oh yeah, you got to watch out for bitterness. Bitterness will get you, right? Bitterness will get you. But that's not what this is talking about. What is the root of bitterness? Well, it's actually a borrowed phrase from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 18 and 19. So that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe. So when Hebrews writes this, what's he say? Anyone. (laughs) He just makes it very concise and succinct. Anyone. Man, woman, family, or tribe, whose heart turns away, from, uh, turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations. Now listen, and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. See, he's writing to Hebrews who know the law, and he's using a phrase there about a root of bitterness, a bitter root, a root uh, of wormwood. Think about this. What does a root do? What does a root do? It digs down into the soil. What does it do if it's bitter? It affects things. What's he saying? Watch out for these people. And verse 19, he says this, And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, even though I follow the dictates of my heart, as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. What's he saying? Be, they, they need to be separate. You need to be separate. And he says if somebody makes a decision to follow their heart and follow the dictates of their heart, he says you need to separate yourself from that person. Why? Because it can affect many. Many become defiled. 
When we look at 1 Corinthians 5, we often talk about church discipline. And I know that that's a, a, a phrase or a term that we use, but really... This, this is more, less about discipline and more about the function, okay? It's more about the function. So there's a function to this process. And obviously, this type of sexual immorality is, is extremely depraved. And, and he even mentions that this is something that the pagans are not even doing. That, that a man would have his father's wife. And he said, you're puffed up. And if not rather mourned, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. What's he mean? Put him outside the camp. You shouldn't be glorying in the fact that you're so accepting and tolerant of this person who's living in this depravity. And then he gives us the reason for that. He says, your glorying is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What's he saying? You bring unholiness in the midst of holiness, pretty soon unholiness spreads. Spreads like leaven or like yeast. Therefore purge out the old leaven, he says, that you may be a new lump. He's saying, you need to put that person out. Put away from yourselves that person, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. In other words, Jesus died to make us holy. Jesus died to cleanse us. So don't allow this uncleanness to be in your midst because uncleanness defiles what is holy. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. This is one way that we as individuals can be corrupted is if we have the wrong friends or around the wrong people or around people that, that try to tempt us to do wrong things. And, and you know, I will tell you this. If you're a Christian and you work with people that aren't Christians and they know you're a Christian, they will give you fits and you've got to be careful. Because they will make fun of you, they'll tease you, they'll pressure you, they'll say to you, oh, come on. They'll even try to make you mad just to see if you'll cuss, just to see if you'll lose your temper. You know why? Because evil company corrupts good habits. We call it peer pressure. It's another type of uh, uncleanness that defiles what is holy. 1 Corinthians 5.12, at the end of the chapter, he says this, For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? When he says outside, he means not outside the camp necessarily, but he means outside as not in Christ. He says, oh, you don't need to be judging the world. He says, but you do need to be judging inside. God judges outside. That's what he says in the next verse. God judges the outside. That's not our job. It's not our job to judge the world, to police the world, to morally regulate the world. In fact, we should not be surprised when people who aren't Christians are not living in a Christian manner. That, that would be illogical if someone who wasn't a Christian was living like a Christian. We shouldn't be surprised at that. But he says there is accountability within. There's accountability within. And so here's what he says. Put away from yourselves the evil person. Where's that from? The law. Why? Because again, and not to belabor the point, but what is defiled will affect what is unholy. Not only will it defile the whole congregation, uncleanness defiles our conscience. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16 says this, But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. So he's talking about ideology, things that are against the knowledge of God, that are contrary to the truth, contrary to what is, to what is good and right and virtuous. 
He says, you've got to watch out for that. These things, they, they increase to more ungodliness. And he said, they spread like a cancer. And then he says, Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already passed, and they overthrow the faith of some. Now, why name them? We don't do that, right? I mean, if somebody does something, we don't go call them out by name. Why does Paul call these men out by name? Imagine you go to the doctor, and he diagnoses you with a condition. And you say, well, what's causing this? And he says, well, I know what's causing it, but I'm not going to tell you. You're going to like that? If you got cancer, and you know exactly why you got cancer, and the doctor knows why you have cancer, but you don't know why you have cancer, are you going to be happy with him if he says, I know exactly why you got cancer, but I'm not telling you. That's why he name drops them. He said, these guys are spreading a message that is cancerous. It's spreading like cancer. It's causing more and more ungodliness. It's overthrowing the faith of some. And he wants them to know what the cause is. And he says, here's the men that are doing it. Why does he tell them that? Stay away from them. Rebuke them sharply, he tells Timothy. Titus chapter 1 verse 15, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. Here's the problem with false teachers who teach false things that spread like cancer is not everybody is equipped to handle false teaching. Not everybody's equipped to that. And sometimes that ideology, it sinks within our mind, our heart. You know what it does? It starts affecting what, how we view what is right, what is wrong, what is acceptable, what is unacceptable. We call that the conscience. The conscience. And here's what he says, to the pure, the clean, all things are clean. To those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. You say, that's right, the world and their conscience is defiled. That's right, but listen to this. Brethren, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sometimes believers become unbelievers. Do you know that? Sometimes believers become unbelievers. And why does that happen? Something creeps in. Whether it's the wormwood root, or whether it's the ideology, or whether it's sin, personal sin in someone's life. A believer can become an unbeliever. And how does that happen? Do you think that a Christian wakes up one morning and says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to harden my heart. I, do, I refuse to believe that. I, 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 don't, I don't think people are that malevolent and that wicked to just say, I want my heart to be hard. But it happens slowly over time. You know why? Because sin is deceitful. And just as Satan deceived Eve, we can be deceived. And it will affect our conscience. It will affect our heart. It will harden our heart. And we can leave God. Now, I want you to notice something positive here. Verse 13. And this is something I often ignore when we talk about these verses. He says, but exhort one another daily while it is called today. Exhort one another daily. Evil communications corrupts good manners. But you know what? Holy communications promotes good manners. Holy interactions and associations, what we call fellowship, helps us to not become tainted or unclean or unbelieving or lose heart or go astray. We need each other. 
And that's what he tells them. You watch out and you exhort, you encourage one another. You do that every day. Are we doing that? Are we encouraging each other? I need encouragement. Don't you? We need each other. And that's the key to this. They want to stay in the camp. They need to be in the camp because that's where God's presence is. That's where rule and regulation and order and holiness are residing. They need to be there. And we need to be here. We need, to, we need each other. Christ is the better purifier. There, the, the, there was great limitations to what this purifying water could do. But Christ does not have those limitations. So let's go back to Hebrews 9 where we started. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is not of this creation. And we've already established what that tabernacle is, isn't it? It's you and I. We are that house. And he says that is a greater and more perfect tabernacle. You know, that's somewhat of a humbling thought, isn't it? That's, more, that's a humbling thought. That really the greater tabernacle that God had in mind was to dwell in the hearts of his people, not within four walls. Not with the blood of bulls and goats, verse 12, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He's not saying that Jesus took his blood inside the physical tabernacle and presented his blood on the mercy seat. This is figurative. And, and you can look at other places. We're not going to go into detail, but Jesus went into heaven into the literal presence of God and presented his blood as the high priest. That's the most holy place. Having obtained eternal redemption. One sacrifice, one sacrifice that is lasting and enduring and forever and no other sacrifice ever needs to be made for sin. His is the perfect sacrifice. He says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the, the flesh, not flesh, flesh, Verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, now listen, offered himself without spot, direct reference to the laws that were given by Moses, without spot, without blemish, and now listen, cleanse your conscience. What was the ashes about? The outer cleansing. Jesus is not about cleansing the outer. That's not his job. It's not his ambition. It's not his purpose. Jesus, the work of Jesus is not to sanctify the flesh or the body. It's to sanctify the inner man. To cleanse it of everything that is defiled. To cleanse it of all that is unclean. And that's what Jesus does. He cleanses the inner man. That's a better cleansing, a better purifying. Corresponding to that, 1 Peter chapter 3 Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's back up for a moment. What is it that gives us that purified conscience? It's the blood of Jesus, right? When does that happen? When we appeal to God for a clean, a good conscience in the waters of baptism, the real and true waters of purification. Not water that washes away disease or sickness or dirt, like he says here, not removal of dirt from the flesh, but an inner washing, a washing of the inside, a washing of the conscience. And so we have some symbolism built up within this red heifer. James chapter 5, 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man 
can accomplish much or avails much. This is something else that God has called his people to do. Now, I told you we'd reference the last few verses, but you remember, once these people became unclean, God said, here's the remedy for that. You're unclean, now I want you to do this. I want you to do this for seven days, and on the third and on the seventh day, I want you to wash with this. That's not for us, okay? That was for Israel. It was a statute for them forever until Israel no longer is Israel. The tabernacle doesn't exist. The priesthood doesn't exist. That's all been done away with. But we do have a purification process, and and it's not through pouring of some water or killing a, a cow or a heifer, for those of you who want to be technical. What is it? Simple. He said, just confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. Why? That you may be healed. You know what people say? That won't work. That will not work. I'm not telling somebody what I did. Why? Well, they might tell somebody. Well, then don't tell that person. (laughs) I'm serious. If you think somebody is going to tell some confession that you made to them, don't tell that person. But there are trustworthy people that we need to have in our life that we can confess our sins to from time to time. And I'm not saying every sin needs to be confessed, but there are some sins that make us sick. There are some sins that stay with us. And those type of sins, we need to have somebody that we have confidence in that we can confess them to. And you say, I'm not doing that. That's what God said to do. And notice that you may be healed. So here's what we'd like. Let's hold on to the illusion of dignity that we have and not come clean about our sin and not have to go through that moment of embarrassment and shame and be sick rather than just rip the band-aid off and look somebody in the eye and say I did this and I need you to pray for me and it will be an uncomfortable moment but I'll tell you on the other side of that is healing it's very simple and that's what God said to do and if we confess what's he say He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't want God to wash my body. I can do that myself. But I'll tell you what I do need. I need God through his grace to forgive me of the sins that I commit nearly on a daily basis. That's what I need. That's what you need. We need the grace of God in our life every single day. We need to talk to God. We need to tell him about the mistakes that we make, admit those faults to him, and pray for his forgiveness. And when we do that, he cleanses us fully and wholly. Lastly, time alone does not cleanse the defiled. You say, what? Seven days, right? But what happened after seven days if they did not do what God told them? They're still unclean. Time was not the magic recipe. It wasn't just about time. Time alone does not cleanse the defiled. You know, in situations like we talked about earlier from 1 Corinthians 5, sometimes people just think, well, if they stay away long enough, it'll blow over and they don't really have to repent or make, you know, bring forth fruits for repentance or whatever. If there's been enough time allotted, we'll just, it's water under the bridge, right? Is that how they handled things in the New Testament? Let's go back to numbers for a moment. Now, I want you to notice this. The man who's unclean does not purify himself. That person shall be cut off from among the assembly because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of purification has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. It shall be a perpetual statute for them. What's perpetual? Lasting. What does it mean he's still unclean? 
It means he hasn't done what God said and he's not going to be clean until he does what God says. That's what it means. Time does not erase the defilement. The purification does. And God gave the terms of how someone was purified. So, do not misunderstand me. If somebody sins and they're a Christian, you don't remove them from the church. That's not how it works. If someone is living in sin and refuses to repent, that's when they're removed from the church. That's 1 Corinthians 5. This isn't about somebody saying, if we did that, we wouldn't have, we'd have empty seats, okay? This is not about that. This is about someone who just says, I'm rebellious and I don't care. And, and so what would Paul say? Deliver such an one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved. Acts chapter 8, verse 20, we actually have the application of this. But Peter said to him, your money perished with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. This is Simon the sorcerer. Simon says, I want you to sell me the ability to give people the Holy Ghost. Kind of odd, isn't it? Well, not if you're covetous like Simon was and wanted to make money. Because think about how much money a guy could make if he could go, tell you what. Today I'm going to offer you the gifts of healing, but you're going to have to pay a steep price. How much money do you think people would really pay? How much money do you think Kenneth Copeland would pay if he could really purchase the gift of healing? Whatever. You know why? Because he'd make a lot of money. I mean, you could use this for covetousness sake. That's where Simon's heart is. I'm going to make a bunch of money. You know what Peter said to him? Well, I'll tell you what he didn't say. Hey, you know what? <laughs> That's wrong. But we'll just, that's water under the bridge. Don't, don't worry, I get it, that was a mistake, but, but you ought not to do that. You know what he told him? He said, you have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this, your wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness. He said, you've got the root of wormwood, Simon. You become a slave of sin. You're bound by iniquity. And then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you've spoken may come upon me. Did Simon repent? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. But Peter didn't just say, Hey, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Just go on. You know why? Because he knew there's going to be problems. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. So what happened to that man that we talked about that was delivered to Satan? What happened to him? Did he stay in Satan's grip? Did he die lost? You know, I'm thankful we don't have to worry about that because Paul actually tells us what happened to that man. I want to end right here. Because what happens when somebody is purified? What happens when somebody does what God said and they come back? What are we going to do? You know what some people's tendency is to do? To never let them forget what they did. Never. I'm so thankful that y'all hadn't done that with me. Aren't you glad that people hadn't treated you that way? Wouldn't that be awful? If you finally got your heart right and you came back to God and people would never let you forget what you did, listen to what Paul tells Corinth. He says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. He's talking about making them sorry by telling them what they had to do. He says, But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive 
and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. At one point, he says, you need to push this person out of the congregation. You need to reject them. Do not receive them. Don't eat with them. Don't have fellowship with them. When the man repented, he said, now I want you to forgive him and reaffirm your love. Sometimes that's harder. Sometimes that's harder than church discipline. Is when they come back and we say, we love you. We're so glad that you're back. We're so glad that you've repented. That's hard, isn't it? It's hard to even think about. But he warns them that that could be just as much a tool of Satan as anything. Now, whom you forgave anything, he says, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Now, listen to verse 11. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. I'll tell you, Satan is definitely crafty and cunning, isn't he? Because he will get us if he can get somebody that's defiled and unclean in the midst of the congregation and spoil the whole. But I'll tell you, he can do the same thing if somebody comes back to Christ and we don't forgive them. He can do the same thing and he can poison us and take advantage of us. And he doesn't have to make us fall into depravity and uncleanness. If he can make us have bitterness in our hearts and be unforgiving, that'll do too. And so we're warned about this. These people that were cleansed because they were unclean had to come back in the camp. And it was the camp's responsibility to receive them. And if that ever happens to us, it's our responsibility to receive them as well. Why? Because God received us when we were defiled and unclean. He cleansed us and he welcomed us as a son, as a daughter, into his family, into his home. And that's exactly what we have to do as Christians. The lesson is yours tonight. If you have a need tonight from Christ, we offer the invitation. If you want to appeal to God for a clean conscience in the waters of baptism, we want to help you do that. If you have sin in your life, we are not about airing your dirty laundry. We're not asking you to come up in front of the congregation and confess to the congregation any sin. But if you're having problems in your life and you want us to take that to the Lord and pray with you or for you, we'd be glad to do that. Come have a seat. As we stand and we sing the song of invitation.